0: Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we're looking at Doctrine and Covenants 77 through 83. So this is, again, two weeks worth of Come Follow Me.
1: We're also a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Some other Dialogue podcasts that you might want to check out are our friends at Beyond the Block, James and Derek. We really appreciate them and all that they do for so many of us. Like, we wouldn't be here without them. And also, we want to direct you to the Dialogue Gospel Study podcast. Dialogue actually holds bi-weekly Gospel Sunday study lessons with invited guests. And these are usually experts in their fields, and they usually do like a question and answer. Sometimes it's just a really great way to be exposed to more of the like intellectual side of the Mormon study sphere and to elevate your gospel study in that way.
0: Yes, and we are super happy to be back. We took a little bit of a break in June, but now we're back in July.
1: Yeah, we had to take a break for our mental health. I just want to be upfront with you all and remind you that we are two disabled women <laughs> running this. And it takes a lot of our time and effort. And as always, there's things that we have to work through in our own lives. And the podcast is not immune to that. So we took some time off to take a mental health break and kind of reevaluate where we're going with the podcast, what our goals with it are, and how to best get there. So there will be some changes. You might have noticed that on our Instagram, we have turned off commenting on our posts. This is for the time being because we just don't have the spoons. However, we still want you to engage with us on Instagram. And normally I say this at the end, but I'm just going to say it now. Please continue to follow us. Turn on your little notifications in the top right. When you go to our profile, there's like a little bell thing that you click. That way you can see posts. And if you share them in your stories and add your own little comment, we would love to see you share them and give us your reaction in your stories when you share them. And that will really help us get the word out to other disabled and neurodivergent people who are connected to Mormonism. Yeah, and as always, our DMs are open for more personal questions. But just remember that we will respond when we have spoons. So, yeah. All right.
0: So, like we said, we're jumping into Doctrine and Covenants 77 through 83. I'll just give a brief summary before we start Section 77 is questions and answers given about a few chapters in Revelation. Joseph Smith at that time was currently translating the Bible, and these are some questions and answers that he gives on certain sections. 78 and 83 are talking about the order from the Lord to establish the storehouse for the poor and the organization of the United Firm to accomplish this, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit. 79 and 80 talks about mission calls given to saints. 81 establishes the first presidency, and we'll definitely add more context on that too. And then 82 is the sustaining of the prophet in a general council meeting and the revelation given in that meeting as well.
1: All right, we're back at it.
0: (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I don't have much to say for 77 except just the fact of the layout of it, I feel like is super interesting and really helpful. It literally goes through a couple chapters of Revelation and it says like, why does Revelation use this language? Like, what does it mean when it talks about beasts or eyes or wings? And There's like a little cue for the question, and then the next little section is an answer. My thoughts on this is just that I wish there were more... Documents like this that broke down the meaning of difficult scriptures that was accessible in this way readily to the people who desire it or need it. Like this is right in the Doctrine and Covenants and you don't have to dig that far to find it. Whereas resources on the church website, there's so much on the church website that it might be hard for people to find resources like this.
1: Yeah, definitely the clear way that it's put out. My autistic brain <laughs> really appreciates it where they're just being straight up about what does this mean? What does this mean? Is this literal? Is this figurative? Oh, actually this is figurative. This is a metaphor. There are quite a few things in this section that are so confusing to me, but I'm just want to say I don't understand like why the earth would be a sea of glass in its immortal sanctified state because that's in verse 1 and then it goes on to say that like everything is spiritual and temporal right that's verse two and that the four beasts are figurative and represent the link between the spiritual and the temporal which i do like i just i don't understand that doesn't make sense to me that seems counterintuitive like how can beasts and bodies exist in an environment made of glass does that make sense like just feel like an environment made of glass would be like really hostile towards life like it just makes me think of like interstellar when they like land on these different planets and like these waves come and like the robots like we have to get out of here or whatever you know what i mean
0: (laughs) yeah yeah like it's not a complete metaphor
1: yeah it's not a it seems like there's some conflicting metaphors in there and also it makes me wonder about the metaphor for our bodies becoming sanctified and immortal you know like Oh, and resurrection because if the earth is going to like change to this state of glass then to me that seems to like devalue the beauty and the physicality of the earth before it was quote sanctified you know as it is now right like in this Mm -hmm. temporal state and that kind of like makes me cautious about the idea of resurrection although i already was cautious about that if you've listened to our previous episodes because like i don't want to be changed into something that's beyond my recognition you know what i mean yeah
0: i love that thought i think it's really really difficult to understand what is metaphor in the scripture and what Mm -hmm. is literal right there are some things in revelation about the last days that most saints take literally Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they're meant to be so. True. This section, especially the fact that it's broken down and it's—I mean—is every verse? It talks about how it's not literal; it's metaphor. I don't—I don't know if there's anything that's literal when it's talking about this well, section, at least.
1: It, it says, "What is the sea of glass spoken of by John, fourth chapter and sixth verse of the Revelation?" And then the answer is, "It is the earth." In it's sanctified, immortal and eternal state. Like to me, that seems like literal. And oh, then later yeah. on, because in verse two of section 77, it says, what are we to understand by the four beasts spoken of in the same verse? And the answer is they are figurative expressions. Do you see what I'm saying? So like yes. when it's, when it's saying that something is figurative, it comes out and says it right away. This is figurative. So I feel like mm-hmm. by that, the implication is that if it's not, stated that it's figurative then it's literal at least in this Mm -hmm. section which is like a kind of a a mind for an autistic person
0: (laughs) yeah it's really confusing
1: because we're already like trying to navigate what's literal and what's figurative in like our conversations with people anyway so trying to reorient myself to this is is a, a little mind boggling anyway so that's the way I understand it. I don't know. I don't know. I, may, I could be wrong. This is Maybe this is my autistic brain just taking everything literal again.
0: Right, because sea of glass seems incredibly metaphorical, but it doesn't say that. So, yeah, it is really confusing.
1: It seems metaphorical to you, but I'm like, my mind is like, literally, how would that work? The animals wouldn't survive, you know? <laughs> so to, I guess my point is this... Although I like this format, I still feel like this section leaves me more questions than answers. Does that make <laughs> sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. As Revelation commonly does. But yeah, even yeah. breaking down Revelation. like <laughs> I, I think it is a good goal to do that with more complicated sections more often. But also consider people that think in diverse ways, right? Like, yeah. if you're going to break it down, do it in a way that makes sense.
1: Yeah, be consistent. If you're going to point out what's figurative, then keep pointing out what's figurative. You know what I mean? Like, don't like yeah, switch it up and point out something that's figurative and then say a metaphor without pointing it out later. Yeah, because that's confusing. This applies to like when you're talking in church or Sunday school. Yeah, and I just want to point out, and then I'll get back to this later. Verse three in, in section seventy-seven asks, are the four beasts limited to individual beasts or do they represent classes or orders, right? And this is in reference, again, to Revelation chapter 4. And the answer to that in this verse 3 says, they are limited to four individual beasts, which were shown to John to represent the glory of the classes of beings in their destined order or sphere of creation in the enjoyment of their eternal felicity, I just want to say, maybe I'll come back to this later, that there's a big intersection and also conflict between animal rights criticism, animal rights theory, and, like, disability theory, right? That's a point of tension, and that's something that needs to be explored, but basically, in summary, one thing that's really common to kind of disparage disabled people is to compare them to animals to say that their lives are not any more worthy to live than animals are. And actually, this is also really tied in with racism as well. We saw that when we're talking about, what was a couple sessions ago? But people were referring to the exclamations of some neurodivergent and some black people in church and having these spiritual witnesses, they're referring to them as like chimpanzees, et cetera. And so it's really important that we like, Note that this comparison between humans and animals, treating animals like humans while at the same time, like, treating humans like they're less than animals. Anyway, and then, like I said, I think there's more in that later. So,
0: okay. So, 78, right in the heading, it talks about. How this is Revelation given through Joseph Smith, and it's talking about establishing the storehouse for the poor. And then it has a really big paragraph about how in the section, the identity of the individuals within this section was changed, like their names were changed mm-hmm. for a while. And then, I mean, you find out and Come Follow Me in the 1980s, they changed it back to originally who the section was written about. So now, the Doctor and Covenants we have now, it is the correct names. And the section header doesn't really explain that. And it literally says... Since there exists no vital need today to continue the code names, the real names only are now used herein as given in the original mm-hmm. manuscripts. And I was like, code names? Like, what? The- <laughs> what's <laughs> happening? So I looked into that more and section 78, it doesn't say the words United Firm, but this is when the organization was established. And Mm -hmm. the United Firm was established to manage the church's publishings and business affairs, is what Come Follow Me calls it. Yeah. They say it was divine through the Lord that they needed to establish this organization to put in order temporal things of the church, I guess. Land, uh, scripts, text So Joseph Smith was the leader of this organization, and then I think there was nine other members, other major church leaders at the time.
1: There's an article in the BYU Studies, which is a scholarly journal. And it's by Max H. Parkin. This is kind of an old article. But at the time, he was working on the Joseph Smith Papers Project for Ohio and Missouri. He received his Ph.D. from BYU in church history and doctrine and earned a master's degree in history and philosophy of religion. He taught for 28 years at the Institute of Religion adjacent to the University of Utah, where after retirement, he continues teaching as a volunteer. But yeah, this this article that... that Mr. Parkin wrote is like 63 pages long. And it's called Joseph Smith and the United Firm, the growth and decline of the church's first master plan of business and finance, Ohio and and Missouri 1832 to 1834. Obviously don't have time to quote all of it. But I just wanted to show people that this is like, under discussed and that there's a lot more to it. And it's more complicated than we give credit for. Anyways, in his introduction, Dr. Parkins says quote, While Latter day Saints may not typically think of Joseph Smith as an energetic businessman or as an assertive entrepreneur, multiple business interests captured his attention beginning shortly after the church was organized. By February 1831 in Kirtland, Ohio, he began to inquire about economic matters. And by July, the 25-year-old Joseph Smith embarked on a path of land acquisition, community planning, and other commercial ventures. He, meaning Joseph Smith, operated his businesses under the principles of consecration and stewardship and coordinated his enterprises through a business management company he named the United Firm. He supervised the firm by revelation, including a firm, final lengthy revelation in april 1834 that terminated the company most of the revelations about the firm he then published in the 1835 edition of the doctrine and covenants cautiously substituting an array of replacement words or unusual pseudonyms not found in their manuscript copies these words, which had a tendency to obscure the company's activities, replaced the names of the firm's officers, businesses, and operational details. Yes. Most notably, the church leader replaced the company's name with what Orson Pratt called a new, quote, fictitious title, the United Order. So when we read United Order here in the Doctrine and Covenants, is talking about this firm. And using another pseudonym, Joseph Joseph renamed the revelation that terminated the firm revelation given to Enoch, which later added to its to its misunderstanding. Confusion increased inadvertently, perhaps when in territorial Utah, Brigham Young borrowed the firm's pseudonym for a new pioneer enterprise of his own, the Utah United Order. Anyway, <laughs> that was super long, but I feel like that gave me a lot of context that I'd never heard.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that you read that. It's interesting what was changed in the Doctrine and Covenants and then what was restored and what wasn't, right? So Mm -hmm. in the Doctrine and Covenants, the original script was, you know, the way it was. And then they changed the names and the purpose of the business or the firm in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then they restored the names, but they didn't restore the purpose of the firm and what it states in Doctrine and Covenants, that remained changed. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I don't really understand why, like I, I understand why they were changed in the first place. I'm assuming based on what I read, Come Follow Me refers to a couple different resources to learn more about the United firm and inside of them, it kind of points out the concept of like, there were a lot of finances mixed into this uh, members of the church owned their own businesses and that means that like members and non-members shopped there and they maybe certain people didn't want to support the church but wanted to shop at these businesses so they didn't want it to be connected to the church so much so they could still benefit from it like i get financial reasons and like there were mobs during that time one of joseph's adopted sons actually passed away due to a mob interaction that Joseph and his son and Sidney Rigdon had during that time. So, like, there's a lot of reasons why they would want more privacy, but why was it never changed back the purpose of the United Firm within the Doctrine and Covenants? So, to give more information about that, Come Follow Me says, what was the United Firm? And it kind of shares the purpose of the United Firm. And then below it, it says, I can help, quote, advance the cause of the church And then it says, the Lord told Joseph Smith and other church leaders that managing a storehouse and a printing press would help advance the cause which ye have espoused. What would you say is the cause of the church? Ponder this as you read Doctrine and Covenants 78, Mm 1 through 7. Perhaps thinking about these verses could influence the way you fulfill your church calling or serve your family. And then it goes on and on. But what I didn't like is... When you look at that scripture that Come Follow Me says, ponder this as you read, verses one through seven, it talks about how the purpose of the United Firm was, let me quote it, in regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion, and it focuses really heavily on supporting the poor through the storehouse. Um, but we know that there were other purposes in the United Firm. And you could you could argue yeah. that it all eventually comes back to supporting the poor and supporting the people of the church. But if you say this is revelation given from God to Joseph and it was changed and it was never fully changed back, that doesn't sit well with me to still quote it in Come Follow Me and yeah. say, what was the cause of the church? Read this to find out when that wasn't the full cause of the church that was laid out when the Lord told Joseph to establish the United firm. Am I making sense? I feel like they're picking and choosing like how the story was told when I don't understand why they don't just restore the full revelation there and just like, or just don't canonize it, you know, or just communicate better about the whole story of how it was changed and then what parts were restored and why only certain parts were restored. Maybe it was revelation to only restore certain parts. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to do mind gymnastics to try to figure out why it was restored the way that it was or changed the way that it was. I just feel like there could be more clear communication about this story. And people shouldn't have to hunt to find the answers if it's included in the text and if we're told that it's from the Lord.
1: I feel like the church now has a shame problem, I want to say. I feel like we're almost we, I don't really mean we, I mean like the people who are making these decisions about what to include and what not to include, right? Um, What to be transparent about, what to kind of bury underneath other stuff. I think it cares too much about what the public thinks, which is ironic considering like how it started off as like oh we're we're these special unique people Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like that's kind of the story we tell ourselves but if we're going to claim that we're like special and unique and separate from the world which is problematic in and of itself
0: and that we're claiming that we're the restored church and the only true church on earth we have to add that in too because that there's consequences to that
1: yeah if we're gonna claim all those things then we should own up to it instead of always wondering, like, oh, what are people going to think about this? What are people going to think about this? You yeah. know? And it's a very, like, white, neurotypical thing to do, in my opinion, to kind of, like, be ashamed of your own past and not, like, own up to it. Very much like a PR management mindset where you're not really solving the problem, you're just smoothing it over for the sake of your image. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And leaving stuff out in the process. To where it's Mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. like, without knowing this, I read Doctrine and Covenants first, and then I read Come Follow Me and learned more about everything about the United Firm. Without Mm -hmm. knowing that background information, I took notes on this section, and I was like, oh, how cool that, like, it's talking about how to create order in the church. Because it doesn't say United Firm in the scriptures. It's just talking about the church. Uh Uh-huh. I wrote... To create order in the church, to advance the cause of the church, they are called to organize, regulate, and establish the bishop's storehouse for the poor. And how cool is that? That that's like the priority. And verse 7 even says, it talks about how there's a place in the celestial glory for doing this, for obeying this command of God to establish the storehouse. And I had all these like awesome perceptions about like, wow, like we really do look out for the poor and that's such a big focus of the church. (laughs) And then you learn all this background information. And again, yes, I see how that could eventually connect back to supporting the poor, but there's a lot of information that's left out in all of how we tell this story. Right.
1: It's kind of the same thing nowadays too. The church and the, some people are going to might might say that this is, sounds very anti mormon of me but it's not anti mormon to just state facts okay what is really anti mormon is hiding things and not owning up to it right but the church of jesus christ of latter day saints is a corporate church we have investment funds we have billions of dollars I and mean, if you compare that to how much the church is spending on, like, charity things. It's not even—the church itself isn't paying its own tithing. They're not paying 10% of those billions of dollars. I just want to point out that it's not um, really—it's not really any different except on a larger scale now than back then. You know, same thing. Like, using kind of these purposes of caring for the poor, caring for the needy, caring for the, quote, marginalized— but not really. But how much? How much of that? How? What percentage of that is actually going towards helping those people? Yeah. So I don't know. It, it's weird. I guess I don't really have an answer for that. Just that this is just one of those hard truths that we need to reconcile with, and then make our own personal decisions about in regards to the church. You know, I personally don't pay tithing anymore. I don't have any guarantee from the church that it's going towards the poor and needy a b i'm poor and needy myself and i need that money c the church has supported really terrible things in the past with tithing money that people have paid i don't know it's just one of those things that that if you're going to be a a socially conscious member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints that you can't just ignore you know you have to work through it does that make sense
0: yeah and it's Uh, It's tricky that you have to do all this extra work to learn about it because, like I said, you don't start learning about what actually happened until you click on these extra little resources that are listed underneath the Come Follow Me sections that just give a brief statement about it. And then you found that totally different article that had the 60 pages. Like, that's not even connected to the Come Follow Me, right? So there's so much more to learn that is even connected to Come Follow Me. Yeah, I think the church... It's it's gotten a little bit better at sharing more history and like the revelations in context, like Joseph Smith papers. It's gotten better, but like there's still a lot of work with it to connect the dots and realize like the truth, you know? And I'm sure there's still a lot mm-hmm. of things that we don't know about, you know.
1: Yeah. Despite all this united firm stuff on section 78, I do quite like verses five through six that says That you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. At first glance, this verse can seem a little bit confusing and run contrary to doctrines like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, because it's saying equal, equal, equal. But both of these doctrines can be used to uplift, validate, and support marginalized people. Like this one in particular gives firm evidence that we can't just push things to the side and say, oh, it'll work out eventually. Or like in the next life, you know, like, no, this is a pretty like firm, stark statement that we need to be equitable and like try to remedy injustices in this life. Otherwise, in verse seven, we don't deserve the celestial kingdom. So I actually think this is like super radical and I want to start using it more in that way.
0: You know, I think we need to make our own scripture mastery, Serena.
1: Our own scripture mastery? <laughs> yeah,
0: let's do it with all the other podcasts that we follow.
1: Yeah, that would be lovely. I I'd go for that.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Why don't we move on to section 80?
1: I do have a little bit for 79. Oh, Yeah. Okay, so 79, Jared Carter is called to preach the gospel by the Comforter. In Revelations and Context, it also talks about this guy, John Murdoch, who was also called to preach, and how back then it was a really common thing, even like not among the LDS Church, but even among other Christian churches, to be this kind of itinerant preacher archetype, right? To kind of, to go around without any food or resources and just rely on the people around you Um, and how the community uh, would kind of rally around these preachers and even if they didn't necessarily like what the dude said because normally it was a dude a cishet man they considered it kind of like an event kind of like a party like okay let's give it a shot sort of thing and then if we like it great if we don't at least this is entertaining a chance to socialize especially considering people didn't have like cars back then. So I thought that was really interesting how that's just not something that you would see nowadays, right? If someone goes around and doesn't have a place to live and just relies on the people that they visit, then we would call them things like homeless, maybe dirty or lazy or crazy Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's interesting how it's changed since then. I really like that example of how the community is kind of providing accommodations for this person and how it's more community-oriented. And there was this expectation that the community would provide, and they did, you know? And even Jesus did this as well, right? It's just through the Industrial Revolution and through the rise of, like, crony capitalism that this, like, fierce individualism and therefore, like really intense ableism has kind of sprung up where we're not allowed to rely on each Mm -hmm. other anymore. Wow! But then I also like uh, John Murdoch, basically Revelations in Context talked about how he went back and forth between being a missionary and visiting his kids after his wife passed away and uh, a bunch of his kids passed away as well. Because at one point, Revelations in Context was like, yeah, he was home for two months and then he left again. But his kids were sick and they were dying. And I just thought that was at the same time that I'm like, oh, that's a cool model, this itinerant preacher sort of thing. Like at the same time, I'm like, wow, that's actually kind of tragic that he didn't, wasn't able to or chose not to provide support for his like closest family members who are sick or disabled. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I don't know, we, we need to be better about providing support to each other, I guess. And we, as in, like, humankind, probably Americans, since this is the context that I'm speaking it in.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I totally agree with everything you just said.
1: Okay, it is section 80. 80.
0: I really liked that it said members are called to preach in whatever places they choose. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I guess I do like that. Yeah, I I wish that were still applied nowadays
0: yeah come follow me kind of makes it a little bit but it's obviously not the same as like a mission call from the first presidency come follow me kind of says like and no matter you know wherever you are around the world whatever calling you have like you're part of building the lord's kingdom if you decide to serve and in whatever capacity you do it it's important
1: interesting yeah, I do like that. I don't have any other comments on that, but I do have a comment on verse 1. Oh, sure. Okay. Why does it use the word creature? That's my autistic question right now. Preach the gospel to every creature that cometh under the sound of your voice. Oh,
0: um actually the first thing I think of is the well, the foyer, who's also a member of the dialogue podcast network. They just had an episode, I mean, it was end of May they posted it. It was called The Ongoing Quest for Racial Equality. It was actually posted on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. They interviewed LaShawn Williams, Molly Bonner, and Paul Reeve to have a conversation about racism and racial equality. In the past, in the United States, currently United States, and in the past of our church, and currently in our church, uh, they actually talk about on the episode how the word "creatures" used to talk about like how we should teach the gospel to all creatures. How Joseph Smith took this call very seriously and was actually pretty radical for his time. He took that meaning every single person and the episode talks about how there's kind of phases that the church has gone through in being supportive of black people seeing black people as equal and then the priesthood ban was racist and against seeing black people as equal and then how like the ban was undone and how it's better today but not perfect so there's kind of they kind of break it down into three phases but initially how This concept of teaching all of God's creatures was radical at the time and how other white churches at the time and other white people at the time looked down on the church for including black people, baptizing them, and including them in how we gave people authority in the church. They used it, I'm not explaining this very well, they used it as a way to also oppress the church in the fact that they were including black people. And they looked down on that for the church. Mm -hmm. So I also think about with the word creatures, I think about just how it's biblical language. Like I think that that's kind of where this concept was drawn from and, and why it was used in these revelations in the doctrine and covenants. I don't know a lot about like where the actual concept of like using that word came from though using the word creatures to refer to all of god's people or all of god's creations
1: yeah um i just again with the whole comparing humans to animals thing that i want to unpack to me reading this literally i'm like okay are you going to talk to the squirrels and the wolves and like the rabbits like you gonna sit there and hold a like a little snow white discussion with them you know like <laughs> like I don't you don't really mean that like why mm. I just I don't uh, I, I, I wish people would say what they mean and mean what they say that's my autistic griping right there and then I thought well maybe this is like a language difference between 1828 and now so I looked it up in the Webster's 1828 dictionary. Creature. Okay, creature, noun, that which is created, every being besides the creator, or everything not self existent, the sun, moon, and stars, the earth, animals, plant, light, darkness, air, water, are the creatures of God. Okay, so you're preaching the gospel to literally everything? Hmm, okay, the second definition, in a restricted sense, an animal of any kind, a living being, a beast. In a more restricted sense, man. And this is part of the same definition, which I thought was interesting. Thus we say, he was in trouble and no creature was present to aid him. Three, a human being in contempt. Whoa. The fourth definition is, with words of endearment. It denotes a human being beloved as a pretty creature, a sweet creature. The fifth one is, that which is produced, formed, or imagined as a creature of the imagination. Uh, The sixth definition is, a person who owes his rise and fortune to another, one who is made to be what he is. And then the example that that one gives is, great princes thus, when favorites they raise, to justify their grace, their creatures praise. Okay, random ass uh, poem that it cites there, hymn. (laughs) That literally, like, it doesn't even make any sense to me when I'm reading it. Um, so I'm sorry to our listeners; it probably didn't make any freaking sense. Then the seventh definition is, which I thought was super interesting: a dependent, a person who is subject to the will or influence of another. Wow. So, I don't know if this was intentional, but as always, impact over intent, right? But it seems like when they're using creature. In this sense, it's not the first definition, which is literally everything. Like, we can assume that they're not saying, talk to every plant and tree and squirrel, right? So it's not the Mm -hmm. first definition. It could be the second definition, any man, right? Okay. However, the definitions that relate to human beings in this definition from 1828 are all kind of, like, passive, like, lowly sort of definitions. Like, almost dehumanizing. a a person who doesn't have as much agency, right? Like an idle creature, a poor creature, a person Mm who is subject to the will or influence of another, or someone who owes his rise and fortune to another, someone who is created or formed or imagined. None of these have like really any agency, or if they do, it's very limited agency. And maybe Derek has more thoughts on the etymology of the word creature and how it's used in the Bible. But at least in this sense, I feel like, It's almost used sort of paternalistically, kind of like, I'm the expert, I'm the adult, and I'm going to show you the right way. Hmm. Sort of like a white savior approach, and not Hmm. really, like, respecting the agency and the background and the knowledge that the other person possesses, you know? And maybe I'm, like, completely off, but the fact that that word is used instead of the word human- or even man, which would be, I would object to because I don't, that's not gender neutral, but whatever. It, it's interesting that they chose that word to use.
0: Yeah. I feel like all the definitions you found, like, depending on which one you subscribe to, it can take your thought process on the meaning of this scripture and this calling to preach the gospel in a lot of different directions. Yeah. I had never analyzed that word before. I always this is you're gonna say neurotypical of me (laughs) i always like read it as a very figurative like word to mean share it with every person that you come in contact with
1: yeah yeah i don't really have any answers for that well i mean back to the whole humans and animals thing this book called beasts of burden is written by a disabled woman sunara taylor And this, so I'm quoting, I'm quoting an article in the New Yorker, which is an interview that they did with Taylor. And then Taylor points out, in the past, colonial subjects were often described as both disabled and animal-like. They were seen as shambling, hunched, and bestial, and therefore as lower on the chain of being. This authorized their exploitation. So I just think that's super interesting considering the context of like missionary work and how Christianity has used missionary work as a way to exploit indigenous people. And even back in like section 77 was talking about the beasts and the different classes of being, four classes of being. Mm -hmm. And so we can kind of see that this kind of colonial mindset of different beasts, different animals, different humans are all categorized according to like their usefulness. Does that make sense? And Mm, wow. This is something that I think the church is going to have to come to terms with soon about how our missionary work in the church has allowed for neocolonialism and imperialism, American imperialism, and the destruction of indigenous cultures around the world and how our church has been complicit in that. And we're seeing that. It's being held accountable in other places like in Canada with the indigenous schools that the Catholics ran, right? And all these bodies of indigenous children were found. That's a tragedy and that's genocide, you know? And I'm not going to compare what our church has necessarily done to that because I think we've participated in indigenous cultural erasure in other ways. But I just feel like there is a reckoning that is going to come for our church at some point in regards to the way we've treated indigenous peoples. And we can see that in this link between disability and animals and how that language describing the people that the missionaries are preaching to alludes to people as more animals than people. Does that make sense? I don't know if that train of thought made any sense. Right,
0: right. And the church actually did have a program that moved Native American or indigenous children to different member homes to like give them opportunities to have education in schools that were connected to these communities. I don't know if there were any rules about sharing the gospel with them because all of them were like young children, but that happened, I'm pretty sure under Spencer W. Kimball. So yeah, the church does have history there. And I think it's really important to really think about the connections that you've made and how significant they are because like when we read the scriptures and take the wording for granted we maybe don't think about like the history behind these concepts and how like if someone supports these concepts like the idea that some people are like animals and you know whether that's embedded in racism or ableism or homophobia or transphobia or all of the above whatever those concepts exist and can be either consciously or subconsciously pulled from scriptures to like support that
1: yeah i i agree with what you said i didn't know that about spencer w kimball although that doesn't surprise me because he's and transracial adoptions are traumatic i should say especially if they're non-consensual that sounds weird this happens all the time when we're talking about kids at the border of the united states who are coming over for asylum and being taken away from their parents and then being sent out to all these different adoption agencies without their parents' consent, you know? It's not like this only happened in the past. This is still happening nowadays, and it's something that we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are living in the colonized United States of America need to be aware of.
0: Oh, so it went on longer than what I thought. So it's called the Indian Placement Program or the Indian Student Placement Program, also called the Lamanite Placement Program. It was operated by the church in the United States, officially operating from 1954 and virtually closed by 1996, although it, it peaked during the 1960s and the 1970s. Native American students who were baptized members of the LDS church were placed in foster homes of LDS members during the school year. They attended majority white public schools rather than Indian boarding schools or local schools on the reservations. So it was Native American students or indigenous students, children who were already members of the church. I, But yeah, they were taken and placed in homes during the school year of white families to put them in those schools rather than Indian boarding schools or and I'm reading from the website Indian boarding schools or local schools on the reservation.
1: What what website is this?
0: Oh, um this is just Wikipedia. It oh, okay. was the first thing that popped up when I was trying to search and remember who the prophet was at the time. Oh. It says, sorry, let me just read this part. It um an estimated 50,000 Native American children went through the program.
1: I do not want to speak for for any indigenous people however from the research i've done and from sort of recent events i really doubt that that was not traumatic for the individuals involved yeah my my heart goes out to the indigenous kids and families involved who have lost their connections to their culture and their roots through programs like these. And more than that, in in other cases, lost, literally lost members of their family because of religious imperialism and Christian imperialism and genocide. And it's, it's terrible and it's tragic. And that's, like I said, something that I expect our church will have to be accountable for and like soon like they need to get on top of that this is not like a pr just a pr tactic it's about from your soul actually repenting there's a lot of things that yeah. the church needs to repent for um anyway moving on to section 82 we get a scripture mastery actually in verse 3 for of him unto whom much is given much is required and he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation once again, this may not be the way the verse was intended, but I think we can use this ver- this verse productively and apply it to when we're talking about privilege in our discussions. Although I don't necessarily like equating light to privilege, but I hope you can kind of see where I'm going here. Like if you have more mm-hmm. privilege, more things are given unto you, right? You have an obligation to use it responsibly. You're required to, to give more in that context. And if you don't use it responsibly, then you receive a greater condemnation than someone who doesn't have that privilege. Does that make sense? Mm. Do, you, do you feel like mm-hmm. that's um that's a fair reading of that verse?
0: Oh yeah, that's wonderful.
1: oh good <laughs> however, um, I think we need to be careful when applying this to discussions about like intellectually disabled people because I think it can lead to infantilization and like denying them their humanity and agency, right? So in that sense it gets a little bit tricky because I can imagine people using this verse to say, oh, that person doesn't need to be baptized because they're intellectually disabled, right? And like denying them that choice. You know what I mean? Hmm. I imagine this verse I mean probably on the church website. It wouldn't surprise me if it was on a page about like that, you know? People not allowing intellectually disabled people to like make choices and be accountable as adults and and to live full adult thriving lives because oh they're not given as much light so I just want to offer that caveat yes uh, I think this disabil- like accountability differs based off of privilege but I think when it goes to the point of like infantilizing someone and denying them like choices that goes too far Mm -hmm. and then verse 10 i the lord am bound when you do what i say but when you do not what i say you have no promise there's another scripture mastery growing up i always thought of this in like an obedience and blessings context but i want to move it from that framework slash mindset into sort of a boundaries mindset because i think all of us do this when we have our own personal boundaries and so i actually like this because it's an example of the Lord, God, the divine, however you want to call them, setting a clear boundary, right? Like if you do what I recommend, then I'm bound. If you don't do what I recommend, then you don't have a promise. I might do it, I might not. Boundaries change, promises change, and are broken. But when we live up to like our word, and we respect other people's boundaries, it's like easier to know where each of us are and like how to live in harmony and when someone breaks a boundary it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be negative consequences but it certainly like increases the possibility that there will be does that make sense yeah i like finding scriptures that model good boundaries because i feel like in the church we're not really taught them clearly
0: (laughs) man yeah that would be really cool to like have a full lesson on boundaries because there really are. I mean, you've found multiple already just in our work with Holy Human of setting boundaries and establishing boundaries and keeping boundaries. That's really interesting.
1: Just a couple more things. Section 81.
0: Yeah. So 81, it's talking about the establishment of the first presidency. Joseph Smith originally called this person named Jesse Gauss, Goss. I think it's Goss, G A U S E, to the first counselor position. It wasn't called that at the time, but that's what it eventually became for the first presidency. And it doesn't say really any information in Doctrine and Covenants, but also when you research it through the church website, it doesn't really say what happened. But Brother Goss was excommunicated from the church, I mean, under a year after he received the call. And then Frederick G. Williams was put in the position instead, and the section originally the revelation was given to Brother Goss, and then when it was printed in Doctrine and Covenants, I'm not sure what year it was changed. It put in Frederick G. Williams' name instead of Brother Goss, but all the words stayed the same. It's like applying the scriptures to yourself. Come follow me. It talks about it that way. You can put your name in. And receive all this extra meaning. And I was like, I mean, this is different in my mind. This is so different. Like, I feel like that's heartbreaking that he was, I mean, almost just completely erased. The only place it mentions him is in the heading of the section. And then in Come Follow Me, it talks about him a little bit, I should say. But I think it's especially heartbreaking and ironic and sad considering verse 5 in this section, section 81. Verse five says, sucker the weak, lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. And well, first I have to say, brother Goss, if he made the decision to leave the church, we don't have information of why it happened, but that was the decision that was made. I don't think that you should like go after people and harass them because they're weak and you need to strengthen their feeble knees. Like, I don't think that you should do that, but I wonder how much Frederick G. Williams or other leaders in the church took this scripture and applied it to the person who it was applied to in the first place, you know, like did they try to succor him? Did they try to strengthen him and understand his concerns and help him? We really don't have any information about what happened of why he left the church. Come follow me if you look at like the additional resources it supposes that it's connected to he he was a member of two different churches before he joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it supposes that it could be connected to that, that he felt more drawn to his, the doctrine in the gospel that he learned before and had trouble bringing that in, or it wasn't accepted when what he was trying to bring in. And that could have led to him leaving the church, but that's not fact. That's just them supposing. So yeah, I have a lot of feelings about that verse and in, in applying to what was happening when this verse was given.
1: I didn't even make that connection. Like, did they even apply that to him? I think that's really insightful and, yeah, tragic. When I first read about it in Revelations in Context, I was like, hooray, more excommunication stories. Let's see if he was also neurodivergent, right? But, um, and then it doesn't even say, right? It is interesting to me how section 81 and Revelations in Context says that he was excommunicated, but then Revelations in Context, when it keeps talking about him, says that he left the church, which I think it's... It's just mm. funny how they how they're putting that in instead of excommunicated. They're making it. They're they're shifting the agency there. Do you see that? Yeah. The situation sounds like it was messy, and yeah, and most of the time, like from recent excommunications that we've observed, uh, most of the time these people don't want to leave the church. Um, they want to make it better, right? So the fact that they're saying he quote left the church is just kind of fishy to me, mm-hmm. and yep, and just another like instance of the church erasing the history and and putting in other things. That's sad to me, and yeah, I feel like there is a big element of at least if you've never seen this phenomenon in the church, I feel like for certain members of our audience, it could be really disappointing and kind of a a crash for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. To find out that the church has hidden all these things and changed all these things. And this is actually like the third time, the third section in this episode where this has happened.
0: To be frank, I was talking to my husband, Ryan, while I was reading all this. And I was like, I mean, I don't know if they have this caveat with the Doctrine and Covenants, but with the Book of Mormon, they said like once it was translated, it was just edited for like grammar and you know like things that that don't ultimately change the meaning but the meaning was changed in some of these sections so yeah it's a lot to think about I think it's important to learn even though it's a hard thing to learn
1: I will say that there was a recent collaboration between Beyond the Block and Faithful Feminists where they talked about things like being changed you know in the text yeah this is something that we have to come to terms with. I hope that it's not too overwhelming to try to accept these hard things about the church, that you're able to see that these hard things and the good things can coexist, right? Because you can't really make a decision about whether or not something is right for you until you see it as clearly as possible, in my opinion. And for that to happen, you need to have As much information as you can, including the hard things and the good things. And this is going to happen in pretty much any tradition or religion. You know, there's going to be hard things and good things. And maybe that means you leave it and try to find something better, but that you might go through this whole process again, you know. So it's just something that I don't know, take some time to mourn, but also don't throw away everything that's good at the same time because those things might still exist, you know, and we just have to. Accept people and organizations as complicated as they are, but that doesn't mean we can't expect them to change for the better. Yeah. Anyway, what about verse five in and of itself? Do you like the way it kind of depicted disability?
0: Ooh, let's talk about it. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> in Come Follow Me, if you go down to like it gives additional ideas for family scripture study and home evening. It quotes this verse, and it says, To learn about the principles in this verse, perhaps family members could share examples of when they felt weak or feeble, and someone could succor or strengthen them. You could also watch videos about serving others, such as—and then it lists two videos. One of them is called Works of God, and it's about two disabled children, little girls— It's their parents. Well, first it's James E. Faust's voice and like showing scenes of these girls. And then it's the mothers telling stories about times that they've needed help with their disabled children and how people were inspired by the spirit to help them in their ward and how helpful it was. And I feel very, very alert and critical when I watch anything that the church releases that depicts or tells the story of disability at all and I take it very seriously because I know a lot of members uh there's a lot of like unsaid things that are drawn in from these depictions and assumptions and stereotypes and it's just it's there's a lot to them oh I should say as well One of the girls has an invisible disability, and one of them doesn't. One of them is in a wheelchair and is nonverbal. So the video itself, I feel like it did pretty good. Well, it depends on the perspective you look at it, I should say. If you're wanting to tell the story of caregivers or parents of disabled children and how we can support them, I feel like it did a really good job. But... I feel like that's an old story. Yeah. That's a story that's been shared a lot. And it's the biggest focus I would say when we talk about disability in the church is like, how can we support the people that are caring for these people? Because it must be so hard to care for a disabled person. I feel like it's overwhelmingly that story that's shared or like the tragedy of disability, right? It doesn't, like the children themselves with the disabilities don't share their perspectives. The fact that they're children period, I have a little bit of problem with like they aren't old enough to consent to have their stories shared in this worldwide church
1: is it not fictional?
0: It's real, yeah, oh, so it's okay. it's people real lives showing oh, their I faces, showing their homes, how they function in their homes, yeah, so that i I don't like that. I think that even. And maybe some parents will disagree with me. If your child isn't old enough to consent to their story being shared, you should not have Instagram accounts about them. You should not share their stories online. I think that that's wrong. I think that you should take advantage of spaces that support caregivers and parents of disabled children. And I think there's a lot of good resources and community that can be found there for you. But if it's you sharing stories about your child when they're vulnerable, especially like in vulnerable moments, is what I mean. I think that that's morally wrong. When it's talking about disability, we need to interview disabled people who can share their experiences themselves, especially disabled adults, so children can look to disabled people for examples and say, like, okay. I don't know how to do this and this is hard and new, but here's an adult doing it and they're doing great. And we need to show disability as a neutral thing of people just existing with their disabilities and thriving as parents or in their callings or whatever. It's hard to be the person who's actually connected to this, this, the disabled person, and to not see that there's An effort in showing our stories the way that they need to be told and helping us make communities and connections. Yeah. But one positive thing that the video did do was when it was sharing the stories of these girls and their parents her, I can't remember if it was Sunbeam or primary teacher, came to the house and was like, what can I do to support your family? And she ended up reading all these books about this child's disability and like borrowed some books from the mom and just took it on herself to like learn more about how to support this, this child, this person. And I thought that that was really cool. When you look at a disabled person, whether it's invisible or visible you assume a lot of things and then you're like okay this is how I should act around this person but a lot of those things are based on what media says stereotypes things that are taught not by disabled people of how to approach people so it's really important to like learn about the disabilities learn about the individual and move forward after doing those things so I thought that the video did pretty good at that part at least
1: yeah, that's a good example for non-disabled people to strive for, you know? <laughs> and even for us with people who have different disabilities than we do.
0: Yeah, I would say like it's I, I think I would love to encourage people to watch the video um at the end of Come Follow Me just to see like the choice that the church made and how to connect the concept of the weak and the feeble to disability at the end of this section. But I I would say that there's a lot missing to the story. And I hope that we can do better on that. We need to be better at that.
1: Your your thoughts were spot on. I'm really glad that you watched it. So I don't have to. Although maybe now you're telling our listeners and readers too. So maybe I should.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to. I was getting ready for it to be really upsetting. And it wasn't as upsetting as I thought it would be. But I mean... Even though mine is visible, I recognize that I do still have privilege within my disability. So it might be more triggering for other people.
1: Yeah. Like you said, it's an old story. But not only is it an old story, it's, it's a harmful story because it's been told so many times and because of like what it's excluding, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's harmful to us as disabled people for people to constantly... Refer to us as burdens, and for people who we love, our family members, to like have this pressure to like quote serve us when they don't want to. I don't know. It's just, I feel like that breeds a lot of resentment, I should say, in families with mixed like able bodied and disabled people in it. And I don't think it has to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Disabled and neurodivergent and able bodied and neurotypical family members can coexist it's just a matter of like stating our needs clearly and negotiating with one another in love you know like instead of excluding disabled people from the conversation and denying our agency right and like you said like we all have our privilege in different ways and our disabilities And we all have different intersecting privileges. And so it doesn't mean that we're not going to mess up, you know, ourselves as disabled people. But when, like, these stories are told, it removes us from accountability, too. And that is not consistent with a doctrine of eternal progression. We all, like, learn and grow, no matter who we are. And, And I say grow in a metaphorical sense. So denying us our ability to, like, make choices and make mistakes and learn from them is not in line with that doctrine. Yeah. I also just, like, I don't know, maybe this is just me because I'm not wanting kids at the moment. I just, like, really don't like it when all they talk about is disabled kids. You know what I mean? Hmm. I feel like that's related to what, what you said before, but also I just want to make that very clear that, like, that's an, a separate issue, regardless of, like, agency that we, and, and accountability, but, like, disabled adults exist, and it seems very shallow to just focus on disabled kids without, like, talking about, like you said, sharing experience of disabled adults. It's kind of the way I feel like we treat some people who are pregnant then don't provide services afterwards for them Mm. to provide for their children, right? Um, It's like your life only matters up until a certain point. If we are going to say these lives matter all the time, then they need to matter all the time, even after they're born, even after they turn 18. Mm -hmm. But I do, but but the verse itself I like, you know, because my knees are feeble, (laughs) I got them feeble knees where are my like hunky Mormon men lifting me up you know
0: (laughs) yeah it's tricky like good and bad I feel like we need to support people and like see where they struggle make accommodations help them but also I feel like it leans a little bit into like you can overcome it and we can help you overcome it a little bit like strengthen the feeble knees i don't know
1: yeah i i definitely feel like this verse can be taken the wrong way mm-hmm. and misused by people um who are not disabled um or who just have a lot of internalized ableism yeah complicated verse
0: yeah one more one more thing i want to add i think it's interesting when whoever writes come follow me um, (laughs) when they decide to make it about disability and when they decide to like look over Mm. those concepts or skip them. The verses that were very specific about like healing disabled bodies Mm -hmm. come follow me didn't address them at all and then this verse you could take it as disability or not um sucker the weak lift the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees you could take that in a lot of ways that don't apply to disability but they did depict a story of disability in this come follow me and it bothers me that i believe they're not thinking about it in disabled people's eyes they're more thinking about it like how do we deal with disabled bodies? How do we take care of this problem? That's how it comes off to me.
1: Like dehumanizing, like objectifying almost?
0: Objectifying a little bit. Yeah. Like this section, it's the caregivers that are telling the story. And then it's been a couple times in Come Follow Me where it talks about like having the faith to be healed and bring about miracles, right? A really important question that a lot of disabled people, I would say most disabled people have with religion is like, will I be healed? If I have enough faith, will I be healed? They didn't address it at all. So,
1: I mean, yeah, I I guess it doesn't surprise me that that it is that way, because as we know, the disability office of the church is very small and doesn't have any disabled people in it. (laughs) Yeah. This is why representation is important. Let us know, everybody, what your thoughts are on this verse and if you like this depiction of disability in the scriptures, how you would interpret it or how you would clarify it to make it more affirming of disability and neurodiversity.
0: Thank you for listening and supporting us as we do our best to support you, our friends.
1: Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram is at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-E. And don't forget to send us some money through patreon.com slash holyhuman because we put a lot of time into this and we really want to keep it going. Send us an email if you would like to be involved or send us a DM. Our email is holyhumanpodcasts at gmail.com we're also
0: on facebook we also want to thank mativ for the intro and outro music we accessed the song through freesound.org we are now releasing episodes every two weeks with bonus episodes coming every once in a while so we'll see you in about two weeks again thank you
1: bye